I'm John Bailey, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk with notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is the film director, producer, and writer Nicholas Winding Refn, known for a trilogy of Danish films titled Pusher, and two recent Hollywood releases, Drive and Only God Forgives. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And I hope I pronounced your name correctly. I must say, from an American, you did the best I've ever heard. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> so you are a Danish native. Uh, your parents were both in the film industry. What early memories do you have of their work? My mother's a photographer. My father's an editor. Uh, my stepfather's a photographer. So I guess images has always been a huge part of my upbringing and editorial aspect of images. I um, don't really have any specific childhood memories of one, you know, became a, an obvious Big Bang Theory. But I do think that a lot of my life changed radically when I was about eight, because that's when we, meaning myself, my mother, and my stepfather moved to New York, Manhattan. So, which was in the uh, late 70s. And that time, you know, it's odd because I'm trying to tell my kids, you know, who have an iPhone that when I was about eight, you had to sometime call in the evenings just to get a good phone connection. And it's so absurd. It's so many, you know, it's only 20 years ago or 25. At what point did you begin to develop a personal relationship with film? Well, I always say film found me. You know, I I certainly don't consider myself a director or a writer, for that matter, or a producer. I think that I was brought up from a, on a very healthy diet of Scandinavian socialism and, you know, European fine arts which actually is a really dangerous combination because it makes you love Ronald Reagan just to able to rebel against your parents, which is, you know, a very important part of your identity. I'm dyslexic, which, of course, affected me massively in my schooling. Uh, you know, I didn't learn to speak English until I was, you know, between eight or nine, that's when I came to America. So I came to America with, you know, as a stranger in a strange land, not knowing, you know, the language at all. I think that film, because of the images, just became a very obsessional aspect of me understanding entertainment. And maybe that is the Big Bang Theory. What really changed my life when I was eight, besides coming to Manhattan was television. Up until then, in Denmark, you know, we had one television channel that did not have any children's program other than some very healthy, socialistic, heavy-messaged programs that are, I'm sure, still very good. But if you were lucky, it would maybe be an hour a day, max. So coming to America and suddenly having a television that had... I guess, 13 stations, and then we went to whatever cable stations we had back then, 
was an enormously inspirational idea of myself. So my cynicism in terms of approaching the medium of entertainment comes purely from the the act of having a remote control and and having to be able to disjoint images and put them back together through television. So I, I'm very much a television junkie, meaning that I don't watch a lot of television, but I love the concept of a television. I love the view of a television. I think television as a medium, of course, is older because it's digital revolution. The television screen has now become a huge new outlet of creativity. It's almost like a two-way forum now. Film, of course, uh, was always something I was interested in. Um, I just It found me, as I said. It's not a specific film. But I decided that maybe I wanted to pursue or I wanted to get into it when I saw the Texas Chainsaw Massacre when I was 14. Not because, I mean, the film frightened the hell out of me, but it was at a time when I could rebel against my mother and stepfather because, I mean, American, you know, violent American films were something my mother detested with a passion. So, you know, for me it was the Holy Grail. And because musically I could never do anything. You know, my mother photographed Jimi Hendrix, she photographed Miles Davis, you know, she'd been all around in those kind of art forms. So violent cinema was really only the thing that was my, you know, my cup of, um, of opportunities. What did you watch with your parents on TV and at the movies, and what did they forbid you to watch? I wasn't allowed to watch anything violent. I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of television because my mother was very concerned of the effect of it, which I understand being a parent myself, that it is a very, very dangerous toy. You know, we would go and see films, you know, mostly children's movies, you know, American, normal Hollywood movies. But it wasn't until I saw the Texas Chainsaw Mask in a double, in a double feature with Hills of Eyes. And by that time, I was fortunate I was going to the cinema by myself. And uh, my mother was furious that I had seen it. But I, I really loved it. And I loved not so much the movie, but I loved the effect it had on me. That of me, it was like an installation. It was a piece of music. It was an abstract art form. It was very narrative disjointed. And up until then, Hollywood movies had been more conventional Hollywood movies. Or conventional European movies had been what I've been spoon-fed. And here was something that was just so outrageously odd. And that probably planted a seed within me of really pursuing film later on. But again, I didn't have an agenda with it. I wanted to be a toy designer when I was younger. I still collect toys. I'm a massive toy shop uh, lover. Unfortunately, that has been so imperialized, you know, it's so it loses a lot of its effect. But I gravitate towards Asian toys. That at least has a little bit of humanity left in it. I went to acting school for a year. Got kicked out. So, because I thought being an actor was like a that that was a job. You can see that in a movie. There was an actor. And this is odd in a way because I grew up on film sets with my mother and my father, you know, ever since I was very little. But I still didn't know what a writer, director, producer actually did. You know, I know a writer wrote books, or they could write a play, but what does a writer of a movie do? What does a producer of a movie do? What does the director do? There's so many people around. So acting was like, I guess, 
the first step into realizing that's not what I want to do. Um, so when I was kicked out, it just proved my a hatred for authority, but also the need that I felt better being active than disactive. How old were you when you were kicked out? I was around, I think I went to acting school when I was like 20, 19 or 20 in New York, Manhattan. And you had begun working in film a bit, I understand, having delved into uh, midnight movies, cult horror films? Well, yeah. I mean, of course, I'm from that generation where VHS really kicked in and that uh, with that, a whole slew of pop cinema came with it, you know, all the, you know, all the conventional exploitation, horror, obscure cinema. But I was more interested in the obscure cinema rather than the straightforward, you know, uh, genre exploitation stuff. At a young age, I understand, you found yourself on the set of a Andy Milligan film, uh, the cult horror film director. And Milligan became an interest for me later on, but he was certainly one of those directors that with VHS came, uh, you know, rebirth of his work. But a lot of people would come out of that time that had been, you know, forgotten. And, you know, if you like things that are obscure or have political incorrectness to it, you know, then it was a haven. And when uh, DVD came along, an even new wave of rediscovery came with that. But around 20, um, my acting school experience was called American Academy of Dramatic Arts. It was not a very good school, but it was famous because a lot of people had gone there. And um, after that, it was a bit like, what do I do now? And I had done a few short films by th- at that time at home. You made several Danish films and made your first foray into Hollywood in your early 30s with a film starring John Turturro called Fear X. What did you learn from that experience? Well, when I was about 30, I some 31, I made a film. I was 30. I made a film called, it would actually be calling, I called it Fear X at the end because I didn't know what to call it, which was the first problem. And I learned that A, you cannot walk on water. And I was, at that time, very driven by my ego and my own vanity in terms of what I thought film and the process of film should be. And that's a very destructive path. So by losing everything, because A, the film failed financially, you know, it failed artistically, I felt, it felt, on all levels, I had all every kind of problem you could ever have I had on that movie. And it made me bankrupt. I ended up owing my bank a million dollars, and the film was not particularly well received. Uh, at least it got distribution, which was just, I was lucky, but it did not succeed in any way. So when you basically have lost everything and you're uh, degraded and humiliated, artistically, financially, you owe your bank a million dollars, you have two options. Either you lie down or you get up again. And when I got up again, I think I got up for all the right reasons. 
and I realized that I had maybe made films for the wrong reasons. And that if I just approach filmmaking, not what I think filmmaking should be, but just as a pornographer, meaning what would I like to see, I will probably make much better films. And I will make it more enjoyable. So to pay off my debt, I made Pusher 2 and 3, which was a continuation of my first film that had done by that time almost seven years, eight years earlier. I paid off my debt and then I went to the UK to make my kind of alteration of my new life. First English language film. And that was Bronson, which then led to Valhalla Rising, which led to Drive, and then which led to Only God Forgives. In the uh, time after Fear X, the film that bankrupted your company, and you were working to get back, working to get back on your feet, um, you found yourself, uh, you and your wife, the subject of a documentary called Gambler about the process of finding your feet again. What was that experience like, to be on the other side of the camera? Well, I think my wife was more concerned about it to begin with. It came really from a friend of hers that was a student at the Danish film school that was about to do her thesis film, and my wife and I worked on it together. And afterwards, she became interested in documenting our life and the idea that they would document our lives was frightening at the same time maybe a way to clench oneself on one past my wife Liv was a little more hesitant but you know since they were friends the director and her it kind of made everything easier and you know then it became part of the process. She was allowed full access to our life, not knowing what the result would essentially be, and um, that was that. Your first true Hollywood success just came in the last couple of years with Drive. How did the experience of making Drive and the reaction to it uh, change you? It would have changed me if I had been younger, if I hadn't gone through my own kind of artistic financially meltdown. But Drive never became a Hollywood movie because nobody in Hollywood wanted to finance it. I mean, I tried to get the studios to buy it, but they they didn't like the script, or they didn't like me, or they didn't like the combination of myself and Ryan enough to wanting to buy a movie that was essentially no more than a than ten million dollars. This was Ryan Gosling. Yes. How did he get attached to it? Well, he didn't. He came to me and asked if I would want to do a movie with him, and he had been interested in this uh, material for some time. And we came up with an idea to make a film together during a very odd dinner between us that led to a very odd drive that led to this idea of doing a movie that essentially then became a little bit of drive and a little bit of many other things. So the only way we could get it financed was we had to pre-sale can to an X amount of money. 
and then by foreign, and then we would have two billionaires put up a little cash, and then we would get a tax credit. So it essentially was financed by all my the way I do all my other movies, which means that you have X amount of dollars, and then there's not a dollar after, and there's nobody to save you, and there's nobody to step in except the insurance company, and they'll just take it away from you. So I've never worked in Hollywood. I've shot in Hollywood, but I've never worked in Hollywood yet. But it was well-received in Hollywood, well-received critically, picked up an Academy Award nomination. Uh, What was that validation like for you? How important was it? Well, success is always great, but it's never more than success. And then there are many different definitions. There's artistic success, there's financial success, there's a combination. You know, when I made the movie, and even afterwards when I was finishing, everyone kept telling me, you know, even people that were close to the movie, even some of the financiers, that this movie was not going to work. It was going to be a disaster. So to me, it was, um, of course, very pleasurable, the... uh, the massive success that it got compared to my other films. And um, all you do is enjoy that. There seem to be numerous parallels in Drive to uh, the Scorsese classic Taxi Driver. Uh, Was there a conscious effort on your part to pay tribute to Scorsese with Drive? Uh, Not intently. I mean, at least not in my mind. I think that I was what I call it in my Kenneth Anger mode. I mean, the whole movie, I stole everything I could from Kenneth Anger. I mean, even the the logo of the um, Scorpion is lifted from the logo of Anger, Scorpio Rising. Aside from Anger, uh, what other directors have been most impactful on your work? God, there's been so many. I mean, I like all kinds of filmmakers. Um, I think that the ones stand out are the ones that don't make perfect movies, but they make their movies. You know, so, of course, I have a lot of admiration for the classics, and then there are people that um, may not be the greatest filmmakers, but what they represent fascinates me. I'd like to talk about Andy Milligan, the cult horror film director. Uh, I understand you have made an effort in the last few years to kind of rehab his image. He's been tagged at times as one of the worst directors of all time. How do you perceive him? Well, Andy Milligan is one of the worst directors of all time. (laughs) But what's interesting about him and why I got interested and for some reason started collecting his material, was A, I guess I needed a hobby, (laughs) first of all. And then I get quite obsessive about things once I start, so I had to get his negatives or prints. I had to get all his posters and press material. I even went as, as far as buying all his original produced, unproduced plays and so forth. But what really turned me on was the uh, biography on Andy. And um, 
because I began to see his films in different ways because Andy was always a terrible, outrageously campy, larger-than-life, very poorly produced films for zero money for a market that only consisted of Times Square. What I find interesting in terms of him and nowadays is that in the world of movies, which in a way, even though it's an art form, is different from painting or writing or music, in that it is so grossly a commodity beyond anything. And um, we spend so much time, or some people do, in trying to preconceive this commodity and mold it into what would be essentially perfection in the hope that then it would make more money. And perfection means a superficial perfection. It will look great. It will sound great. It will be correct in all aspects of filmmaking. You know, there are people that have brought filmmaking down to a pure mathematical equation, you know, the three-act structure. And all these things aren't bad, but if you combine them in a specific way, I think it goes it defeats the purpose of even making it. But there is the three-act structure. There is the uh, scene counts. There's the page count. There is how many elements you need of this to get that, the attention spans. All these things are have become mathematical, and which is odd because one thing that I can say is that nobody knows anything about art when it comes to what works or what doesn't work or what's right, what's not right. And it's no longer about making something organic. It's about making something perfect, which is the chief enemy of creativity. So Andy, you know, is a way to remind myself and I guess a few other people that filmmaking is sometimes more interesting in its imperfection. It doesn't mean that Andy Milligan is an inspiration. It doesn't mean that Andy Milligan is a new, like, rediscovery of, of a genius that was overseen. There's nothing in that scope. But he was a filmmaker that didn't have the technical qualities to make great film, but he had the inner desire to express himself through film. And that is what I find more interesting sometimes, especially in this day and age where we try to capturing the so-called perfection in the need of higher dollar cents. Do you have a difficult time with the marketing push that surrounds major films? No. I'm unfortunately very good at it. And you have to be, and you have to be understand how it works. You know, if you want to make movies, there's two things you have to know. You know, you have to uh, know how to write, and you have to know about money. Because those are the two ingredients you need to direct a film. And you may never, never get the right script. You may never uh, get somebody to write for you. You may never find the right co-writer. You may never get that ability. So if you can't find someone, then you got to do it yourself. And you don't have to be a great writer. It's not a novel. It's a movie. It's a blueprint. It's a great art form. But filmmaking is a director's medium. And then you have to know about money. 
like any art form, it's also a commodity. And the way you survive, you have to be sure that people get their investment back. So if you want to survive industry, the film industry, you didn't have to know about distribution because there's no point in making a movie if you can't get it distributed. It's very hard to be distributed in a mass market, but because it's a revolution, whole new arenas have opened up. And that makes it harder, but it also makes it more possible. So you have to understand branding. You have to understand release patterns, promotion, press, PR, all these elements, which is the next step after you made your movie. And then the last part, which is the more it's harder to define, is you just have to make a good movie. You see, if you very clinically and in a very um, analytical way, mathematical way, look at your options for surviving in the film industry, which goes for any art industry, I would think, is you have A, you make a movie, it makes a lot of money, everybody walks away. Then you have B, which is you can make a movie and not lose money. There will always be someone willing to go down that path with you. Most of those will probably be film lovers or people that have a special interest, mom and pop distributors, you know, investors that have a special liking to what you do, you know, a patron. Then there's C, you make a bad movie, but it makes a lot of money. And then you have the last category, which is D, which is you make a bad movie that loses money. And that's usually one-off. Now, that's the parameter, and it's how you see yourself surviving, and it's really an independent decision. Did you consider drive an artistic and commercial success? Well, I've been lucky to make movies the way that I have wanted to make them every time. So I can't define them as if they're, you know, creative successes or not. I, I made the films I wanted the way I make them. The financial success of Drive, of course, yeah, it made a hell of a lot of money. But I think the success became more rooted in pop culture phenomena. There are other films that you had made 10 times as much as Drive did. But a perception that it, because it penetrated into people's everyday ideas of culture, that's when it really expanded the horizon financially, that sense. So all you can do is make the films you want to make. And certainly that doesn't come easy. And it's not a given right something you fight for. We're talking with Nicholas Winding Refn, director of Drive, on Profiles on WFIU. Let's hear a bit of music now from the Nicholas Winding Refn film Drive. 
Music from the Nicholas Winding film Drive. This is Profiles on WFIU as our conversation with Refn continues. Do you feel that Drive, having made Drive and had success with it, opened your options as a director and screenwriter? Well, it opened my option that suddenly everyone in Hollywood wanted to meet up. And a lot of big films came my way, which was great. It was it's very, very intoxicating, you know. But every time that I had to make a decision, I always pulled out because knowing that I would not have the creative control that I would usually have and therefore the pleasure would never be as great. You know, it's a it's a high that I'm addicted to that I just won't give up, at least not until it's worth it. Because they, you know, you can have all the creative control you want in the entertainment industry, but what really did drives it is, again, money. If you make a movie that's like, say, let's say only God forgives, you make a movie that's $3 million, between three and four total. Well, that needs to make X amount of millions back depending on how much of the film is cash investment and how much is soft money. But, you know, it's fairly easy to make that back. If you make a $100 million movie, you have to make 300 to $400 million. Well, then you have to make a different kind of a movie than if you make a $3 million movie, most likely. So you may have all the control you want in both arenas, but the pressure of the investment automatically alterates what you're going to do. So you're no longer driven by your creative needs or visions as much as the financial implications when you make big-budget movies. So you could have made a big movie or a small movie on the heels of Drive. How did you decide what to do next? Well, I was contractually obliged to do Only God Forgives, A, because I was going to make it before Drive, and then decided to do Drive first, and then Only God Forgives after. And there's another movie that I'm going to make, again, with the same financiers out of France, which have been very, very good to me, and I very much enjoyed it. And even though I had great opportunities, meaning that I had great you know, there were I had great meetings in Hollywood. I went to all the right situations and had a blast. I loved it. But in the end, it's like walking into the most expensive high-end call girl. And you can fantasize about everything that may come with that. But you also feel a little bit dirty. And it's a bit wrong especially when you have a wife and two children at home. That really deserves your love. That's like your independent film at home. And you say, if I fought all these years for what I had done, they woo can be great to give it up. But then, why? So after Drive, you went home to a film you loved. Only God forgives. I love Drive as well. I love Bronson. I love Valorant. I loved all the movies. I've been very fortunate. There's no difference. But of course, 
had I gone and make a $50, $100 million studio film, that would have been different. Only God Forgives was a $3 million, $4 million film? Yeah, and Drive was about 12 which was the most expensive film I've ever done in my life. But I still, because of L.A., only had seven weeks to shoot it. Only God Forgives um, seemingly polarized critics and audiences. What reaction did you expect to it? Most of what I've ever done has always polarized it. You know, either people love or hate it. People loved or hated Drive. You know, my God, I got sued in Drive by a woman who felt misled somewhere in America. You know, there were people that hated Drive so much that they did everything they could to destroy it on the Internet. So for me, polarizing means success because in the world of arts, when it comes to like, like more like painters or sculptors or designers in terms of installation or even writers, we, we look upon polarization as a successful result, you know, when it comes to especially painting, you know, it really provoked people's opinions. That's a success. In movies, I always find it strange that if we spend so much time vocalizing how different we all are, even though we're linked biologically together, yet our minds is what makes us individual. How are we supposed to love the same thing like art that essentially speaks to us emotionally, intellectually, at different times in different ways, individually? So I always say, if everybody likes it, then you must have done something wrong. Just as like everybody hates it, you've done something wrong. You did experience jeers in the audience at Cannes when it premiered. How did that feel in the moment? There was two setups. Because at Cannes, it goes like there's a press screening in the morning, and then there's the gala screening at night. And it was in the press screening in the morning that you had so much debate going on. But, hey... Everybody was talking about it, and that's good marketing. And then at night, it was the gala screening, which went very well, thank God, because I was expecting the worst, you know. Ryan Gosling has appeared in your last two films, Drive and Only God Forgives. Would you talk a bit about the um, professional chemistry between the two of you? What can I say? We, uh, we met on a very strange circumstances in L.A., and when we decided to work together, it was extremely satisfying, creatively, personally. Maybe it's because we're very similar in many ways. And there's a, there's a telekinetic infrastructure between us that, you know, there's a flow of energy. He's a compelling persona. And in both films, he speaks very little. He's a man of few words in Drive and even fewer in Only God Forgives. I think he had 17 lines of dialogue in the latter film. Would you talk about the power of silence? Well, I'd been doing a few films with silence generally. I mean, um, Bronson was, of course, about a man who talked constantly. 
but it was also a very autobiographical movie of my own life. It's almost like the closest I'll ever get to a biopic. So Viola Reichen became the first movie with silence, and it was almost uh, a, because I made them back to back, it was a reaction to how I made Bronson. And Valhalla going into Drive and then going into God Forgives, there are similarities, and there are obvious ones and some maybe more subtle. But one of the great aspects in terms of acting that Ryan has, a unique, is that he has this gift, this talent that you can't, you know, you can't work it, you can't practice it. It's given to you. Very few people get it. That he can say a thousand words without having to verbalize it. And the camera picks up on it. He can express emotions without talking. And at the same time, he's an incredibly brave actor. You know, he's you know, and I've been very, very fortunate to work probably with the three best actors in the world. I mean, Matt Smigelson, Tom Hardy, and Ryan Gosling. And they're all different, and they're all great in their own, own ways. I think personally I connected very well with Ryan, which also was easy for us to continue working together. But Ryan is a unique force of nature, and he understands that less is more, even though it goes against our, our egotistical instincts of oneself. He can see beyond that. So uh, it's a very, very satisfying collaboration. And um, that also, of course, sparked a very good friendship. In terms of story-wise, there is a very red thread through Hull Rising, Drive, and Only God Forgives, in that the character appears in all three movies. In Hull Rising, the Mets Mickelson character is a man of a mysterious past that has no name. And he basically embarks upon a journey in the film. He's given a name by another character, and that's one eye because it symbolizes the what, the way he looks. In Drive, you have a similar character, meaning a man with a mysterious past, that's defined by his act. The driver. Yes. And in Only God Forgives, there is a Thai police lieutenant that has a past that's not even referred to, and he has no definition. He has no name. But there are very similarities between those three characters. Only God Forgives uh, is a film absolutely washed in red. What influenced the color choices in that film and, and across your films? Well, I'm colorblind, so I like contrast because I can't see mid-colors. The neon and the night of Bangkok is really what made the film come to life. So it's just based on what I can see and feel, really. 
you tend to shoot your films as much as possible in chronological order. What are the benefits and the challenges of that approach? Well, there are only benefits creatively, and challenges are purely financial thing. I've shot all my films basically 100% or 80%, 90% in chronological order every time. I think Drive, we got down to 70% just because there was so much action I had to do at the end. But at least I made it so, I shot it so the actors, characters would basically go out dying every time they were done. So there was no be, there would be no death and then come back and then relive something else. The process of shooting in chronology order, the downside, of course, is the financial impact. But if you plan on it in advance far enough and when you write the script, knowing that's how you're going to do it, you can usually deal with those obstacles along the way. But, of course, it does represent challenges that reflect creatively how you have to solve certain things. But then I always say creativity is about turning your weaknesses into your strength. The benefits are endless. And, of course, one of them being, especially for the actors, that the actors can truly go with the flow of how the character is involved. It's a bit like, you know, rehearsals of theater. You know, you spend months or weeks rehearsing the DNA, the paths of these characters. In the film, you can't because it's very much, at least in my films, you come on set and then we basically leave it take it off where we left last night. And I always make a point out of every morning asking the actors what they would like to do today. And that has to do with the forcing everyone, including myself, to submitting to the creative process, to allow the actors to truly, as much as possible, emerge themselves in what they're doing not just as actors, but as people, because you know there's there's the there there's an actor playing a part, and then there's the person playing the part's view on the part, or even morally views on the part, and it's pulling barriers down and saying, well, I'm interested in you as a person's view on this character, so what would you like to do with this person, and it's a way to accumulate thoughts and ideas and inspiration that then I, as a director, can then mold. But the submission, including myself, because it means most of the times that I change the script, you know, a lot. (laughs) Sometimes the shooting scripts are very short. I mean, I remember the shooting script on Drive I did at the end was like 80 and something pages. And I finished that on a Friday. We shot Monday. And then things alter as they go along. Scenes didn't work out as I had planned. But I can always just go with the flow. I just have to always think ahead. Uh, the elevator scene in Drive came to me while we were shooting, basically, just before we started shooting. Because what was there, I began to see would not work as we were shooting when I was preparing it. So, or Only God Forgives, there was this very significant scene that would tie a lot of the interactions between the characters that did not work. It simply did not work. 
It worked on paper, but when I shot it, it was terrible. It was disastrous. But luckily, I could then take away what didn't work and then go back and see if I eliminate this part, what could replace it, what could be more interesting. And then a whole new ability opened up, a whole new opportunity came that made it much more interesting. Because like painting, you paint the film as you go along, not really knowing the end result, which I find thrilling. I love the fact that I'm a little bit insecure. I know where I want to get to, but what I'm interested in, how do I get to it? Because that's the creative process. The end result for me has no meaning, but the actually buildup is what turns me on. So approaching filmmaking like fetish means that it's all about the journey, all about the creative process, because that, to me, outweighs any kind of money they can ever throw at you. At what point do you begin hearing the musical score in your head? And I'm asking because of an anecdote I heard that might be spurious about your behavior on the set of Drive. Uh, listening through headphones, I think, to Eno uh, as shooting was going on. Well, I do that a lot, um, just generally just listen to music constantly. I mean, I don't do drugs anymore, and I never did. Um, so music was always my source of getting into contact with the higher beings emotionally. And I am very, uh, you know, I react very strongly to music, uh, either if it's anger or or, or there are pieces that will automatically make me cry within tenth of a second, or there are pieces of music that makes me very angry. Apparently, they say that's the same way people with Down syndrome react to music, because there's part of our body that basically is a chord within us that is so refined, and however the music comes and the composition and the um, chords and so forth can approach you and affect you in the most peculiar ways. The way that I approach any film is also if it's a piece of music because it gives me inspiration when I develop it or write it or whatever, shoot it, edit. An example when I really began to use this was, again, as a pornographic approach, Bronson. Bronson was all about the Pet Shop Boys. I said, if Bronson was a piece of music would be the Pet Shop Boys. So I would listen to the Pet Shop Boys 24 hours a day, seven days a week, until the movie was done. And yes, it had a huge, profound impact on how I made the movie. While Horizon was trickier because it had no contemporary music that I knew of that I would probably like. So silence was really the first time that became very dominant. Or the combination of distortion you know, even like you can take Ice Juice Neunbein or whatever. But what really made the impact was the Scottish Highlands and the silence that it kind of, this almost magical sense that it creates. And sometimes I'm more analytical in why I chose pieces of music and sometimes I just go with what I feel right. Drive was very much about the beat of a synthesizer, meaning the, the heart 
how it pumps, and the combination of um, of the feminicity of the electronic world combined with the masculinity of the car world, which is usually a very masculine antidote. You know, it's a very it's a car. It's very it's brutal. It's loud. It's heavy. It's greasy. But with the feminine sound of you know electronic is an interesting clash. So craft work became something that would spend a lot of time thinking about or listening to when I was making the film. And only God forgives what really... I had different approaches to that, especially also coming off working with Cliff Martinez that I hired on Drive that I also brought on to Only God Forgives and who was, you know, his electronic approach. But what really in the end made it work for me was Isan music, which is a piece of country western music out of Thailand, which is very peculiar folk tales. That, I guess, where the end was, I was able, because I was fumbling a lot on what the musical revelation would be until that really came. And something I didn't even know about, it was Cliff Martinez that introduced me to it. And all these movies, it's edited by Matt Newman, who is a probably a very important collaborator of mine in that he's the f- person that s- comes from the start, meaning that when I have an idea to the finished product, and he follows basically every single aspect of that creative process. And um, I like the collaboration with other people in terms of creativity, whether it's cameramen or actors or so forth. But the one that consistently I have always I've returned to is and maybe it has to do with my father being an editor and having been brought up under editing table but it's the process I in a sense enjoy the most but I've heard other people say that in terms of their own films what have you been working on since only God forgives I was uh, I was introduced to the world of advertising um, right after Only God Forgives and have had a lot of um, fun doing um, a few advertisements, mostly for fashion brands. Um, but I've enjoyed it a lot. And it certainly financially has given me the freedom to not having to worry about, you know, how are we going to survive the next month. It takes a lot of pressure. You know, it's an odd... You know, you don't have to go more than 100, 200 years back where artists were purely and simple, just somebody brought in to the royal family for a weekend of entertainment, you know, told, asked, commanded to, you know, write a play or, you know, compose a piece of music and then kicked out Monday morning. <laughs> but in terms of storytelling in a larger scope, I, I've been very interested in my television show. And then I have another feature that I want to do. And then we'll see what the world brings. Can you talk more about the TV show and the upcoming feature? I guess what I'm working most on right now is my TV show, which is Barbarella, which is um, they did a a film version of of the comic book in the 60s, Roger Verdeem and Jane Fonda. But it's based on on a French comic strip called Barbarella. And... That's what I'm spending a lot of time on, seeing if that is something that I want to do. 
other than that, I'm just, you know, I have so many different ideas that comes 24 hours a day. So sometimes you do things and then you realize you don't do something else. You know, it's, it's always an ongoing evolution. And then, you know, you have a family. You're married with two daughters, ages 10 and 4? That's correct. What films do you watch with your kids? Well, they don't really like to watch films very much, but we watch a lot of Wizard of Oz. We watched a hell of a lot of um, That's Entertainment, one, two, three, um, cartoons. I try not to watch television with them, but watch films on a television. Um, it's not always succeeds. I understand you're a Hayao Miyazaki fan. Oh, I mean, to me, he is like, I think, one of the greatest film directors of all time. Do you show them Spirited yes, Away? Yes, yes. We are huge at fans of anything by him. And it's really interesting to see them when we watch his movies, either in the cinema or on Blu-ray, of how enchanted and how interested they are in the story and the character much more than they are in the American animation films, which some are brilliant. But if you're not at the top of the game, I can see my kids lose interest very, very quickly, even though they are so loud and they go by so fast. The, uh, you know, the Asian ones, they're very, very caught up in them. I mean, we have watched um, Spirit Away, of course, Totoro a hundred times. We even have the music. I collect all the music on CD, so we listen to the music a lot as well. Um, uh, Nausicaa is a huge my youngest was forced like that's her favorite movie what do you discourage them from watching well they're not allowed to watch anything violent we try we basically cancel our subscription to the Disney channel really anything that makes my children into products we try to avoid how long before you introduce them to your own work when they're 18. I've been speaking today with director Nicholas Winding Refn. Thank you for being with us, sir. Thank you. This is John Bailey for WFIU's Profiles. Thanks for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in September of 2013. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.